Hey Nathan. Yes, Kelsey. What do you get when you cross a paleoecologist with over 45,000 fish bones from 44 archaeological sites along the Queensland coast? I don't know. What? Our guest today, the official expert in the development of Queensland's indigenous fishing industries. Hang on. Was that a really bad fish joke? If you have any better ones, let me know. And welcome to Supplementary Information, the podcast that trawls the depths of Carbar's research and fishes for answers to all the big questions in Australian biodiversity and heritage. I'm Dr. Kelsey Long, and I'm recording on Nunawal Country. And I'm Dr. Nathan Jankowski, and I'm recording here on the coastline of Darawal Nation. Australia's coastline has been a vital resource for the Indigenous people that have lived there for countless generations on the bounty of the seas. However, the current position of Australia's coastline is the exception rather than the rule, only reaching this level about a thousand years ago. 18 to 10,000 years ago, global sea levels rose by about 120 metres, drowning swathes of Australia's Ice Age coastline. But it didn't stop there, continuing to rise up to at least 1.5 metres above today's level by 8,000 years ago. Such dramatic shifts in landscape organisation would have had a major impact upon the ways in which people interacted with and utilise the fisheries along our coastline. But how would you go about investigating this impact? Where would you start? And how would you compare not only along the entire coastline, but also through time? It sort of became obvious that I really needed to have a look at the work that had been done. Uh, and that kind of lent itself to doing a sort of meta-analysis where you look at the total research that's been done in a particular region on a certain topic and you bring all of that together to see if you can see any broad scale trend through time, for instance, or geographically as well in that particular region. Hello, I'm Ariana. I am currently a postdoctoral research fellow at James Cook University in Cairns. Uh, so my technical specialty, so I'm an ichthyoarchaeologist, so that means that I study fish remains from archaeological context, and then kind of my broader thematic interest is island and coastal archaeology. So I look at fish remains from archaeological sites located in sort of island and coastal settings. We caught up with Dr. Ariana Lambrides from James Cook University in Cairns to ask her how she got hooked on fish, her methods for trawling the literature, and how she deals with those data that got away. Thanks, Ariana. It's lovely to have you. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what the question or questions you were aiming to answer with this research were? Prior to starting my postdoc at JCU, my research focus had been predominantly on the Pacific, so not in Australia. So starting a new postdoc in Queensland with a sort of Queensland research focus, I was interested sort of particularly at looking at fish remains uh, and looking at that variation in, in the ways that fish were exploited in the past uh, along the eastern Queensland coast throughout the Holocene, so throughout the last 10,000 years. Uh, and that kind of lent itself to doing a sort of meta-analysis. It's quite a powerful approach beyond sort of the individual site level, which we often look at, to be able to collate the research from all of the work that's been done and actually see if we can see some really bigger picture things happening in the archaeological record. So I'm going to ask uh, how you kind of got into this a little bit. Um, so what is it about tracking past fishing industries that for you is so fascinating and how did you get here? <laughs> Good question. How did I get here? Well, I guess I always had an interest 
in, you know, zoology and things like that. I, I was really interested in that and sort of fish and the coast kind of was just a natural development because of where I did my PhD. There was a lot of work being done in the Pacific. So if you were interested in looking at fauna remains, that kind of lent itself to um, working on coastal sites and you predominantly have fish from those sites. And, and so it kind of developed from there. Um, but also just to, just to be able to kind of work in these amazing landscapes as well. You know, islands are incredible places to work and really unique in terms of the kinds of questions that you can ask. And that is really appealing to me as well as a researcher. So you mentioned that before, so this has taken you kind of through the southern Queensland and the whole of Queensland coast, but where has this work sort of taken you in the Pacific or um, any islands around? Where have you been? I did my PhD uh, in the Marshall Islands, so eastern Micronesia, and I spent three months on a tiny atoll in southern, in southern Marshall Islands collecting data for my PhD. And that was incredible. And I've also spent time in Hawaii as well, doing some fieldwork projects there. A lot of the work that I've done has been more lab focused. So I've looked at um, a lot of assemblages from particularly Polynesian, kind of Eastern Polynesian archeological sites. And then that was kind of a really good background in terms of sort of lending itself to working on the Great Barrier Reef as well, because there's sort of parallels in terms of the species that you find but also kind of interesting parallels in terms of the questions that can be asked. Uh, I wanted to ask this because I asked Matt Fielding about it as well. So what is your favourite fish species? And is it a favourite because it's easy to identify, difficult to identify, or you really like to eat it, or it's just the prettiest? What's your favourite? Well, um, actually, funnily enough, nothing to do with eating because I am allergic to fish. I have an EpiPen for my fish allergy. so Not the bones, though, thank goodness, right? Yeah, not the bones, not just, just the flesh. So I don't, I don't have a favourite fish that I eat. But in terms of my favourite, oh, my gosh, no one has ever asked me what my favourite <laughs> fish is. Maybe I would say a like a porcupine fish probably because they have these really amazing spines like a porcupine and they preserve really well archaeologically and they're just you know pretty charismatic fish just blowing themselves up floating floating around with their with their spiny exterior. Is that is that is a porcupine fish like the same as a puffer fish? Are they the same species? Yeah, exactly. I have to say I did see a puffer fish like skeleton in the collection and it is terrifying it is like a bunch of little plates and spines and it just oh no absolutely yeah they are they are pretty terrifying but also pretty amazing as well very very true so I wanted to just circle back again and I wanted to ask what was it about this area and this time period that made you want to look at fish industries what's so interesting about this kind of area of the world Aside from the fact that it's an incredibly beautiful part of the world, there's also some really interesting things that happen along the eastern Queensland coast throughout the Holocene. We know that, you know, the marine environment along the eastern Queensland coast was incredibly important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in this region, you know, over many thousands of years as it is today as well. And so I was really interested in sort of looking at the records into the past. And the reason we sort of focus in on the Holocene is because what we actually see at this time, uh, particularly the last couple of thousand years, is this emergence of marine specialist economies. And we start to sort of see over the last thousand years or so, a sort of increase in the relative abundance of marine resources in archaeological sites. And we actually also start to see an expansion in the range of species that people are targeting as well. So that sort of lent 
researchers to sort of start to think, okay, there seems to be this increased focus on the marine environment, on oceans in the last couple of thousand years, sort of increasingly in this region. And we're really, at the moment, we're sort of not entirely sure why this occurs, what's going on. There's a lot of debate around what's happening in Queensland at that time on the coast. So I was really interested in sort of getting into that research and looking at it from a fish perspective, which hadn't been done before, and seeing what that could could bring to that sort of broader regional debate, I guess. Uh, so what are you actually looking at at an archaeological site? What is the process of a group of people going fishing that they leave behind that you examine? In terms of the actual records that we have to look at, generally they come from shell middens. So shell middens are often called um, rubbish, sort of rubbish tips. So I'm not sort of a big fan of that characterization of them because obviously they represent, you know, thousands of years of sort of cultural and social decision making in terms of where you discard your food remains, but also the particular resources that you may target. But that's what we're talking about. So we excavate these uh, shell middens and recover fauna remains. So things like shellfish, for instance, but I particularly look at uh, the fish remains from those sites. So We'll, you know, on Lizard Island, for instance, as an example, you know, we'll be excavating, you know, and control kind of spit, recovering the fauna remains from the site. So we dry sieve it in the field through um, sort of 1.2 mil mesh. So really, really fine mesh because we don't have access to water. Uh, and then when we bring it back to the lab, we wet sieve it in the lab. So that makes it a little bit easier to um, split up all of the material. And then we do kind of a gross sort. So separate out the bone from, you know, the stone artifacts, shells, corals, charcoal, things like that. Uh, and then once that's been done, I take the bone from each of the spits and pull out the fish remains to look at. Uh, we identify those to taxon to species and then look at changes in the relative proportion of species through time uh, across that site. So you're looking at fish bones and how do you figure out what sort of species they are and put them into their right taxons? Yeah, so I analyse the remains that preserve, so the fish bones that preserve. And um, essentially, we have really expansive comparative collections, so modern comparative collections that we use to compare to those archaeological specimens to achieve those species level or genus level taxonomic identification. Do you get all the bones and lay them out as like a fish shape? Because I know sometimes they do that with um, bigger faunal remains and I'm not sure if you ever get enough to be able to be like, oh yeah, it's this whole fish. Um, no, not so much because very rarely do you get very much of, a, of an individual fish. Um, and then in terms of the um, reference collection, that's set up based on the elements. So for each family and element, they have their own drawer. So you don't, I don't store a complete fish together. I sort of break them up into their elements. So it's easier to get to those elements and, and make an ID. Cool. And what's the most common uh, fish bone that you find at archaeological sites? In terms of kind of tropical reef type sites, we get probably like a lot of parrotfish teeth parrotfish vertebrae and their, their pharyngeal grinding plates that they use. So like they're, they're quite unique, um, the, the grinding plates from parrotfish. You get them a lot because they preserve really well archaeologically as well. So they're like the, the kind of like teeth that they're just used for grinding coral. Yeah, the, the back of the throat that they use to grind and that's kind of what produces um, sand. And so you went along the whole Queensland coast and kind of got all these different records of fish remains uh, did you kind of 
collect the data yourself or was this going through old um, research papers? Did you have to individually go to museums and look at bones? Yeah, really good question. So no, I didn't actually look at the remains themselves. I relied solely on the available literature. So primarily what is available, so the published literature, so journal articles, edited book, well, you know, book chapters, things like that. However, where available, I also um, reviewed grey literature. So when I'm talking about grey literature, particularly um, consultancy reports, things like that, um, work that's being done by local government, things like that, to um, uh, look at particular uh, cultural heritage sites and things like that. So those reports, when they were available and had some uh, analysis of fish remains, I looked at those as well and brought that in to the sort of overall data set. So I entered all of the relevant information into a database. So I was interested in how the actual material was recovered. So thinking about the actual methods that we used to excavate the assemblage, but then also I wanted to record the methods that were used to analyze the assemblages as well as the identifications themselves. So I had to get that kind of complete body of information to understand sort of the quality of that data as well and how it came to be, as well as the identifications themselves. Because the data had been sort of collected over probably the last 40 to 50 years, and as you can imagine, like any discipline, what we um, did 50 years ago is quite different to what we do today. So because of that, the data quality was variable. Um, and that's not to say that the data wasn't useful. Of course it, it was, but in terms of what we could do was more limited because of the methods that we used, particularly with some of the earlier work that had been done. So what I decided to do was just use exploratory data analysis. So that enabled me essentially just to look at broad scale relationships between the species that people were targeting in the past and how that changed through time, but also whether we can see any uh, variation across the region as well. So both geographically and temporally. And that was done specifically then to be able to kind of lend itself to future research work. So it was to kind of highlight where there may be some interesting trends where additional work may be needed, but kind of not pushing the data beyond its limits in terms of the questions we were interested in asking. So you were basically just set it, setting it up so that future archaeologists and yourself can kind of use that research in a kind of nice form to compare to other records and other theories and try and get something out of it. Uh, how old were the records? You said that they were the last, how long ago was the oldest fishing records in Queensland that you worked on? So the oldest we have at the moment comes from the Whitsunday Islands, and that's about six and a half thousand years ago. And then we have, you know, right up, into the, up until, you know, present day. But in terms of the majority of our records, uh, they come from the last sort of one to two thousand years. That's, they're the best quality records that we have available at the moment, sort of late Holocene, last one to 2,000 years. And are there any records that are older than this um, that you didn't include in your study or are these the oldest records that exist in Queensland? So there are definitely older records that are associated with fish exploitation. They're the oldest records that are currently um, available. And I mean, there is obviously some debate around some earlier records as well. And I was predominantly focusing on the coast and islands as well. And I had to only use those uh, assemblages that were kind of associated with secure dating and things like that. There were there was some data cleaning that I had to do. So some of those earlier sites where there's still redating going on and some debate around those, I did have to exclude. But at the moment, that's that seems to be the case. 
sort of around six and a half thousand years ago is sort of that earliest record on the Great Barrier Reef particularly. So there's not like a great mystery about why people just started eating fish at this time and then continued. It was kind of just there's, there might not be enough data on that early on or... Yeah, I, I think that could be part of it as well, is that we we definitely have significant data gaps along the Queensland coast. So there's a lot of work that's been done in southeast Queensland, and it seems to be there isn't a lot of fish remains actually in those sites. It's predominantly shellfish. So that's part that's an interesting part of the story as well, is do we have more of a focus in that region on shellfish and not fish? Um, or was fish differentially discarded and for whatever reason we haven't looked at sites that contain the fish. So there's there's definitely a lot of mystery in terms of that, what's going on in terms of our resource selection. Uh, but then if you look at sort of beyond southeast Queensland, we have very patchy records uh, on the coast and the islands of the Great Barrier Reef as well. So there's a lot of potential in terms of research to be done, but at the moment, you know, those gaps do make it challenging to necessarily make any really kind of broad sweeping statements, I suppose, at this, this point in time. Fair enough. Um, so the Queensland coast, it's pretty like huge. And you said you had like quite a few different, how many sites did you have overall that you analysed the data of? So I think it was 44 sites in total. So really when you think of how vast the region is, we're not talking about very many sites at all that have have fish remains that were recovered and identified to taxons. So we have a very, very small sample size at the moment that we're using to sort of consider this vast region, which obviously is problematic because, you know, there's only so much that we can say, but then on the flip side of that, it's a positive thing because there's so much research potential for that region. Uh, and so part of what you did was to break uh, the Queensland coast into habitats and zones. Um, how did you go about deciding what to group together when you were looking at your meta-analysis? What I decided to do was use, so what, it, what they're called, uh, it's, it's IMCRA, so the Integrated Marine um, Regionalisation of Australia. And essentially what that does is breaks whole coastal zone of Australia into these distinct marine bioregions. And those are broken up based on the distributional biodiversity of those particular regions. So it was a good sort of analytical tool, I thought, to be able to kind of look to see whether or not the distinctions that were seen in the fisheries across that region may be linked, you know, to the species that are available or whether they may be actually, the differences may be linked to something entirely different. For instance, you know, cultural preference for certain species and things like that. And interestingly, looking at the data in those regions where we did have higher resolution data available, um, while, you know, we do see that people were targeting species that would have been located in close proximity to the site, it does seem that cultural preference was actually a really important factor in determining what species were being selected. So particular preferences for certain species, not purely what was available, if that makes sense. And so what sort of species were being targeted then? And do you have an example of where they were targeting ones that weren't the most like prolific in that area, but were special for them? Like I said, because we don't have necessarily high resolution data at the moment, what we what we could see is that kind of in the temperate waters of, um, you know, southeast Queensland, that kind of region, you know, you're seeing things like whiting and brim, which are not unsurprising, you know, that they're, they're found quite 
extensively around that region. As you move sort of further north, where you're hitting those coral reef habitats, you start seeing, you know, wrasse and parrotfish, those really kind of colourful tropical reef fish that we're all used to seeing sort of snorkeling in those regions. But in terms of an example where we could sort of see cultural preference being a really important determining factor in resource selection, uh, Torres Strait was a really uh, unique example of that. So a lot of work has been done in the Torres Strait and probably have the best quality records on fish from the Torres Strait in that sort of northern Australian region. And what we could see, interestingly, is that because of the sort of role of fish in the diet or in subsistence regimes, it was a sort of small component relative to, say, dugong and turtle, which were considered more socially and culturally prestigious. And so you actually saw, while it wasn't so much about the species, it was uh, the selection of very small fish, so a preference for collecting really small fish, which was sort of believed to be a result of actually women rather than men gathering fish just in that kind of intertidal zone in tide pools and things like that, whereas men would be going out and um, hunting turtles and dugongs. So that was sort of a really interesting case that was quite different to what we could see going on in the rest of Queensland in terms of the role, I guess, the relative importance of fish in subsistence regime. Yeah, it seems like you can tell a lot of kind of these good stories about people in the past um, by looking at fish remains and the context in which they're found. Um, have you found that any fishing technologies appear to be more prevalent at some times or within these broad groupings than others? And what are they? That's a good question. It's actually really challenging to get at fishing technologies with just the fish remains themselves. Um, and we actually don't have a lot of evidence, recovered evidence of fishing technology from archaeological sites on the eastern Queensland coast. So there we really have to then rely on ethnographic information and historic accounts and also obviously speaking to communities about the, the material culture that they use to target fish. So at the moment, based on the records we have, we really can't say too much about variability in capture technology because we don't have that in the site. And it's very challenging to determine that based on the, on the fish alone. Uh, so what you can look at, you look at different fish species. And I think you mentioned in the paper um, you used ubiquity uh, measures to look at what were prevalent and what weren't. Can you just summarise what ubiquity measures are and what they tell us? Ubiquity essentially is looking at, so within whatever your particular study area might be, whether it's you know a, a bioregion or you're looking at variation across, say, the entire Queensland coast, what you're doing is simply seeing, you know, how dominant a particular species is across that region. So, for instance, parrotfish, you know, if it's in all 10 of the sites you're looking at, you know, its ubiquity is going to be 100%. It's in all of them. So it's a really good way of looking at just in a very broad sense the relative distribution of species across a particular area and whether or not we can see certain species may be more common in a certain area than others, for instance. And you mentioned parrotfish. Do you find that parrotfish or any one species is uh, actively targeted along the whole Queensland coast? Things like, you know, whiting and brim and parrotfish are really common across the entire region. However, on the flip side of that, the remains of those species are really easily identified. And so, so that's kind of an interesting sort of challenge in terms of obviously the development through time of how we actually identify fish remains. And then a lot of the work that we have for this region was done sort of 70s and 80s, where the methods that we used are quite different to what we use today. So um, it's 
tricky in, to sort of know based on the available data if the trends we are seeing as well are purely based on, you know, what was the most sort of readily identifiable because of the methods that were in place versus what is actually a real trend that represents variation in species selection. Yeah. Do you find any species that are quite difficult to identify, but they're turning up more and more recently in like sites that are excavated now versus in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, for sure. I think what what you tend to see is in in sites that have been looked at more recently, you tend to see a wider range of species that have been identified. And particularly, there are a lot of species that, for instance, are only identifiable generally by, say, their vertebrae. So their other elements don't preserve very well, whereas traditionally vertebrae weren't really looked at in Australia, not exclusively, but, you know, that's sort of a a coarse grain example. So because of that, those species weren't necessarily going to be captured at a particular site. So I think that's a really good way to think about it is that we are seeing that as methods develop we do tend to see kind of more species being identified so we have to keep that in mind when we're looking at a data set that was sort of collected over the last 50 years that that's going to be influencing the outcomes that we're seeing. Uh, And so you segmented your data not only in spatially over the area of Queensland but you also looked at 500 year blocks to kind of look at patterns through time. Uh, Were you able to identify any broad patterns Yeah, absolutely. So like I was saying um, previously, where sort of broadly, um, there's sort of this debate around whether or not we're seeing this sort of emergence of marine specialist economies sort of along the eastern Queensland coast over the last couple of thousand years. And there does definitely seem to be something going on over the last sort of one to 2000 years in this region. And what what we found with the, the fish remains data is that it did tend to kind of match those regional trends that we're seeing. So we did actually see an increase in the range of species that people were targeting through time. So that's kind of interesting because that lends itself to that model of that kind of increased focus on on the marine environment, on shore-based foraging, which is sort of where you're seeing that increase in um, the range of species that that people are targeting. So that's kind of interesting that this data seems to be supporting those regional models, but obviously very tentatively at this point. So do you think that those time variations are real or do you think they have been influenced by those other factors like preservation and increasing kind of skill over time as we get more technologies? Look, and I think as well, you know, assemblages that are more recent have better preservation as well. So that's going to have an impact on what we have. So at the moment, you know, that is interesting. Okay, so we're seeing an increase in the range of species through time. But is that purely we're seeing an improvement in preservation through time? So at the moment, because I haven't looked at the remains myself as well, you know, I'm relying on published literature. It's really hard to sort of interrogate those kinds of questions based on the published literature. But those are the sorts of questions that we can get at if we go back into museums and and actually access those collections again and sort of apply those modern methods that we use today and be able to actually start to consider those things in a little bit more detail. That's a very good response. Um, So... You found that um, this diet diversity kind of increases through time and that there's no one fish species that is actively targeted across the Queensland coastline, you know, except for those broad whiting and things like that. Um, What does this tell us? Does this tell us anything about how people were engaging in fishing industries throughout Queensland in the past? You've said that's pretty hard to tell, but can we say anything? 
I mean, I think what that that shows is that these were unique. You know, these were unique fisheries. They were unique to particular communities and unique to particular, you know, regions. So locally, they were locally and regionally diverse. And I think that isn't surprising because people aren't homogenous. They don't, you know, act the same. So the fact that people are interacting with the marine environment in variable ways and targeting different species makes complete sense, but is also really fantastic to be able to actually say that, that we can see that in the past as well as we see it today. Uh, And just to go back to kind of the role of climate and sea level over time, do you think that there is any influence of rising and falling sea levels over this period or on the patterns observed? Look, I think there certainly could be. The problem at the moment is the resolution of the sort of chronologies we have available. So as you said, we could only really look at it in these sort of 500-year blocks, which is just far too coarse-grained to really get into those kinds of micro-changes that are happening in the environment. Um, and sea level variation as well is so variable along the eastern Queensland coast. So it was quite hard based on this data set to really get at those things. But I think that really is a next step to be able to get that local level environmental data, but those higher quality chronologies as well to actually be able to see if we can make any links to changing sea levels particularly. So on that what next sort of thing, uh, where to from here? What are the next steps that you want to do uh, in this process or you think someone should do in this process? Well, I think, you know, these kinds of legacy data sets are so incredibly valuable. There's so much information that we can still gain from those. And I think there's endless possibilities to actually go back and access these collections um, and develop new projects with the communities um, using these existing collections. So obviously archaeology is a non-renewable resource. So if we can develop new projects based on existing material, I think that's that's really important and something that we um, we should do. And it's certainly something that I'm interested in, in doing myself. Uh, and on the kind of new technologies and things that are coming out now, obviously in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have things like eDNA or uh, different techniques that we have now. Do you think that those are really going to help to make this process easier or to tell us new things about species identification in the Queensland coast? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, eDNA, zooms is another technique. So zooms are zoo archaeology by mass spectrometry. So essentially that's, that's like a collagen fingerprinting technique and that enables us to determine the species of, uh, you know, a particular fishbone uh, based on the sort of unique uh, collagen signature, protein signature. So those kinds of technologies are really going to enable us to get more specific taxonomic IDs, so more specific uh, IDs, which will then enable us to be able to answer some far more detailed questions than we have been able to traditionally, as it can be just purely based on the morphological traits on a particular fishbone can be quite challenging sometimes to say get below the family level. Whereas with these techniques that, you, that you've just mentioned, you know, we might be able to get species level IDs. You know, that's something that can be done with these existing collections and actually is going to totally transform our understanding of those sites and could be done in a way that wouldn't um, damage the remains either. So I think those kinds of uh, steps are something that would be really valuable to do with those legacy collections. And that's incredibly powerful in terms of the questions that we can actually ask of, of the archaeological records that we have. We're just going to end, I think, here asking the final question that we ask everyone. What do you think is the most exciting question yet to be tackled? 
um, in this area and what is currently stopping us from answering it? So I guess probably the most interesting thing to be done at the moment is really understanding the dynamics and variability of offshore island use along the Great Barrier Reef. We have really patchy records at the moment. Only a few islands do we have really good quality, high resolution data for. And I wouldn't really say anything is stopping us per se. We just need to, you know, to sort of continue to get out there developing projects focusing on those, filling those gaps and, and sort of developing new partnerships with communities, which is exactly what's going on um, at the moment to really target those, those gaps and, and get a more sort of nuanced understanding of, of the exploitation of the Great Barrier Reef over the last 10,000 years. I think that's great. That's a great point to end it and to also talk about that, you, you know, this is the gap that we've identified and we're doing it. So that's pretty cool. Uh, well, thank you very much, Ariana, for joining us today on Supplementary Information. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. So I think Ariana's done a really good job of how you get from these tiny little fish bones at an archaeological site to reconstructing or looking at the bigger picture of, you know, indigenous fisheries along a whole coastline and back thousands of years in time. But in summary, she found that she couldn't find a huge regional trend. Like not everyone was doing the same thing at the same time. You've got diverse people using diverse fishing practices and eating quite a diverse range of fish depending on what site and what time. I think what she's been able to highlight in doing this work is simply the amount of gaps that are actually currently still out there. But that's what science is, you know, we, we go away, we do stuff, we reevaluate, and then we go, oh look, here is where we can make more improvements. So. I think the, the work is definitely valuable for, for pointing out where we need to sort of target future research. Yeah, and I think it's um, good that she also uses past research and kind of pulls out the bits that she can verify or knows that are useful so that they don't just sort of fall into decay and are lost. And I think the other thing too is, you know, how the methods for dealing with the archaeological record in this area have actually changed over time too. Yeah, and in the future we've got new technologies coming out right now that Ariana's going to look into, like zooms and DNA and how you can use that to identify fish species. Yeah, I'm keen to see what's coming up in the future of fish. So that was episode four, and this is the reviewer comments section. If you have any burning questions that you'd like answered here, just send them in to us. If they are featured in the podcast episode, not only will you get answers, but also be on the receiving end of some sweet SUP Info Pod merchandise. To send us your question, you can tweet them at us using our Twitter handle, at SUP Info Pod, or follow the links in the episode descriptions to the Epic Australia website. Click on the episode that you're interested in, and at the bottom of the page, there's a link to our survey. Just click the link and follow the prompts. The Carver team recognises that all of our activities take place on Indigenous lands. We acknowledge that Australia is an exceptional country with a unique cultural heritage and biodiversity that has been under the care of Indigenous Australians for millennia. This is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be, and we thank all of those communities who partner with us in our research. For 
more information about Dr. Ariana Lambrides and her current and upcoming DECRA research, check out the links to her socials in the episode description. While you're there, you may as well click on the link to epicaustralia.org.au to check out the Carbo research stories and also get a transcript of today's episode as well as a bio from today's guest. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to supplementary information wherever you get your favourite podcasts. So from tropical northern Queensland's temperate Tasmania, in next week's episode, Kelsey and I get fired up about the long history of Aboriginal landscape management through cultural burning. So it's cheerio from me. And goodbye from me. And until you download us again, stay safe. Cheerio. Ciao. No worries, back to me in the studio.